and welcome to Visibility Unlimited and Visibility Unlimited Spotlight, the video portion of the podcast, Visibility Unlimited. I'm Leslie Short, your host and the owner of the Cavo Group. You know, I get very excited about my guest and today's is no different. I'm looking forward to having a conversation with Susan Sloan. We just came back from an amazing trip together in Israel, um, focusing on social impact. How do we cross-pollinate the good that we're all trying to do from impact to intent. Susan is one of those people that is doing that. She is an author, a speaker, a communication strategist. She leads people on policy and diplomatic affairs. She is that woman to have this conversation about gender equality. Susan, welcome. Thank you for having me, Leslie. Absolutely. Good to see you again. I know. <laughs> Please share. Like I gave such a tip of what you actually do. And I don't want to cheat you and my audience um, listening and watching, share exactly what you do. Right now, I am focused on bringing diversity of thought to the table. And so right now in the DEI space, many companies and organizations, governments are looking at how do we get diversity within leadership, management, and the general workforce. But that's not enough. So that's what I'm focused on, diversity of thought. If we bring diversity of thought to the table, we get better solutions because people think differently, where they come from, how they're raised, their socioeconomic status, their education, their culture, their religion, their beliefs, all of that brings diversity of thought. So that is what I'm working on now. Wonderful. Well, I know, and we'll get to your book shortly. Everyone's like, can I talk about the book? <clears throat> I noticed that you've been doing this a lot in a global space. Why? I mean, I think I know the answer, but why did you choose the global space to begin to really have these conversations and speaking with diplomatic and global women? The global space is where it's at. If we look at the different areas that are uh, really conflict zones around the world and we look at who is at the table, Leslie, you know that it's usually not women. And if we have this idea of gender equity, parity, and diversity at the decision-making table, how do we shift that paradigm? It's by having different voices at the table. So not only dealing with conflict, but conflict resolution. And so when I was thinking about writing this book, and I know we'll get to the book later, but generally speaking, many women's voices are not at the table. And this is shifting, especially in the United States, and many organizations are putting more women at the table or trying to bring more women to the table. However, it's not just bringing people to the table, it's also giving folks an opportunity to feel empowered, heard, respected, and then lifting those voices up and giving them a space to actually breathe. So let me throw a few things at you. Yeah, so this is our conversation. Throw it up. So we spoke about, so you said, we're going to get into what gender uh, equality means to you, but you said corporate America is trying to move it. Look, a lot of like all DEI pledges in the last, especially three years, a lot of companies took the 50-50 pledge. We're going to have by, what, 2030, we're going to have a certain amount of women at the table. What they did was move, um, to be honest, they moved white women to the table. Black voices and brown voices were not really heard. Some moved in. But in this last year, the women have either chosen to go mm -hmm. or it's yeah. not as important. So again, that having that seat at the table I always say, what is the, who's having a valid voice at the table once we get to the table? 
A hundred percent. And that's why we're really not there. And we really didn't do a great job. I don't know if I necessarily believe in this 50-50 pledge. I don't think you can have equity in that way. And that's something I learned through the interviewing process when I wrote my book. Uh, when I sat down with Katrina Cooper, who's an ambassador from Australia, mm-hmm. their whole foreign ministry, the whole idea was to make it 40% men, 40% women, and 20% either. And this secret sauce of this ratio, the 40-40-20 split, gives you flexibility. That's something companies aren't doing, is that flexibility piece, because you can't have goals. I think goals are somewhat... Well, everyone's playing with this data. I'm going to use the data, but they don't know how to use the data. So they pay for the data. The data sits on somebody's desk or desktop, and they have no idea how to actually make it come alive so that it can be sustainable. Exactly. Well, it's not just the data piece, right? right? It also has to have the living flexibility. So you can have targets like this 40-40-20 split of this ratio of men, women, and 20% either. But then it gets down to how we have flexibility within the workplace, how we're giving flexibility of what people really need. So not only to have their voices heard, but for instance, if you have, and let's just speak about women, If you have women of a certain age who may or may not have family obligations, whatever that may mean to them, then they need flexibility of time and men need it too. And it has to have equity between both. Absolutely. That's super important because men have to feel empowered to also have the equity to take time for family needs as well. And family doesn't mean children necessarily. No, it can be elderly adults. It can be your spouse. It can be your partner. Exactly. Dogs. I have a dog. (laughs) Everybody. (laughs) Family is very inclusive. You know, but it's also, but you can't build that into your, into your company structure. If you don't have communication to ask what people actually want and you as leadership, not assume what people need. It's that trust. It's that trust piece. And that's very, very important. And I think trust comes from a way of building culture in a different way. And I'll give you an example. There's a company in Atlanta that they, every Thursday, they have fun Thursday and it seems like a fun social happy hour. But there's something more to it. The executives, the C-suite, are the one serving drinks and serving the food to all the employees. Mm-hmm. And it gives everyone a chance to meet the C-suite face-to-face. And the C-suite, they they shift. They have different leaders doing this every week. So there's different faces and different visibility. But it also shows, one, they're caring. They're there. They're serving the employees and the staff. And the second piece is you get that face time with that C-suite executive and it builds the trust and the human-human connection. You're not talking about work necessarily, right. building a human connection. And that creates a rapport where people actually trust when you say, hey, give me feedback. Then they're like, okay, you know what? We sat down with that CEO over a beer or a, you know, a drink, a lemonade, and they right. started to me. And I feel like, I, yeah, I can give them my feedback. I think that is a start. You know, I, I poo-poo it's some of that sometimes. But absolutely. But at least it's a beginning to say we understand that we have to move this needle a different way than what it was before. Exactly. So what does gender equality mean to you? What what is the your elevator pitch when someone says what's gender equality? Well, I usually quit back and say, well, do you mean equality? Do you mean equity? Do you mean parity? I said equality. Equality, Right. Many people get those distinctions completely different. And what I what I like to talk about more is equity rather than equality, because mm-hmm. we're starting from different positions of power. We're starting from different positions. You can't uh, start here and expect to go here 
it's not the same. You can't give the same resources to everybody. Equity to me is a little bit more transparent. And what I mean by that is when we're talking about gender equity is saying, hey, if people are starting here, how do we get them to be on a level playing field? So when they are competing for X job or X promotion, they're at the same playing field. If you're not the same playing field, you can never compete. And that also goes with anyone, people of color, especially in the United States, the equity piece. And so when we think of DEIA of in multiple layers, it's got to be more about equity than equality because equality doesn't really touch that equity piece. Well, I, I agree wholeheartedly with you. I mean, equality, who says I want to be equal to Johnny or Mary? Maybe I feel like I'm better than they are. Maybe I have something different to offer. So don't tell me equality. Exactly. I get to choose my equality. I want to have the equity, the access to make sure I have the proper tools to continue on my journey. I don't want to be compared to someone else, even though clearly in business, you're always going to be compared to someone else. But I want to be able to actually have that openness to be able to say, here's what I'm bringing to the table. Here's what I know I can do. Here's what I've succeeded at. And whether you see me there or not, this is how I see myself. Now, that's an important piece, that access piece. I, yeah. I think that's the part that uh, organizations are starting to look at. And, and from the uh, academic standpoint, access is a huge piece. And many institutions are looking at this. They're not doing necessarily a great job, but they're they're starting to look at it. And the first step is noticing. The first step is always noticing. Right. Now, organizations, whether it's a corporation, a nonprofit, government, mm -hmm. giving the access pieces is, is, is crucial. And so even looking at right now in the United States and from a diplomacy lens, right. the State Department has rethinked how they're giving access to people coming into the State Department. So the foreign affairs exam, mm -hmm. the exam that diplomats have to take to get into the State Department to become a diplomat was very antiquated and yes. was created by a system of people who looked the same, who were a similar gender, and was not even diversity of thought within the system that they're creating. Right. So they had to rework the system. And so now when we're looking at how we're hiring in the United States and, and on a global scale, the access piece of who are we giving access to? And right now, something that I've been thinking about quite frequently mm -hmm. is migration. Of When you have different populations coming into countries, how are you giving them access to work, to resources? Right. And how are you building that human capital piece with the diversity of thought, with all the different populations that are flooded into different countries? And I would say in a good way, because they bring different ways of thinking and different tools and different mindsets. And that is a huge opportunity. So I see it as this connection piece. I know many people across Europe are, are really concerned about migration and immigration. And I, on the flip side, say, hey, this is an opportunity if you choose to take it. But that's the key word, if you choose to take it. And it goes back to that diversity of thought that you said. Most people, not, not a lot of people. <laughs> we'll say many. A many, yeah. many. Still think about what is mine. Sure. This is mine. I own this. Even if they don't own it, I own this. I'm responsible for this. I don't want to share this. I don't want to teach someone. I don't want to share someone. Instead of looking at, wow, what, what newness is coming in? Is it the way it works? Is it another language? Is it? But we're so mine, mine, mine that we don't understand how to build for us. And until we learn how to build us, whatever that us is beyond someone that looks like you, sound like you, and walk like you, we will continue to fight this battle of why are they here and what should we do? 
And it's collective, right? The collective mindset. And it's something in the United States where it's very drilled into us, this pioneer spirit of, you know, if you do your hard work, you can make it in the world and you have you have to go for it. But what's the opportunity that we're looking at is saying it's not you alone. Uh, we are a community and we create community and collective thought together and collective action together, which is far more powerful and far more fulfilling. And something that I'm ever, I've been reflecting on, Leslie, since our trip uh, mm -hmm. in Israel is in Israel, there's a, a more collective mindset. And whether you're in Israel or the West Bank or even in Gaza, there's a more collective mindset in the Middle East, uh, a different way of thinking. In the United States, it's a very singular mindset. What's good for me and my household? Yeah. And we live these lives that are quite alone. And in actuality, there's many communities all over the world that are living more in a community aspect. And so I, I challenge organizations and companies to think mm -hmm. about community and the collective mindset from the organizational standpoint. Absolutely. Because it, it works in the community standpoint. Can we bring it into the organization? I think we can. What really gets tripped up, though, you have all these memberships with business, and it's supposed to be these collective minds. That's the whole point of these. Yes, yes. Yet, <laughs> I can... You, you're a speaker. I'm a speaker. We both go to these things. We get hired to show up and we speak and we get everyone together for that two hours or two days or whatever it is. And then everyone goes back and they go back to what they did. Sure. You have a notebook full of things, an iPad full of notes, and then you don't execute or stay in touch with the people that you met that can like you and I, that can continue to guide you and build you how to build a collective business community. Again, it goes back to all these pledges that people took. And I'm going to pledge for DEI. I'm going to pledge for women. I'm going to pledge for this. We, three years later, we ain't pledging nothing now. Everybody yeah. took their pledge back. No I, more pledges. There's no more pledges. We want action. Act, period. So I'm going to do a little twist, and then I want to get into your book. I have to bring this up as we speak about gender and women. The step back that I feel that we just took in Missouri in the House of Representatives. Now, I am all for dress code. I think you want to trip with me for how many days and what did I ask every day? What's our dress code? What do we need to do? Do we need to be in this? Do we need that? that I'm about. Well, they tell our listeners what, what happened in Missouri in case they aren't aware. Yes. So in Missouri, the House of Representatives have decided that they now have voted that women need to cover their shoulders and their arms. They must wear jackets at all times. So again, I'm all for being dressed the part. That's where I was going. I, you, you, you dress for where you're going. I'm, but you're going to tell me I need to be in a jacket and a, I can't cover my arms for me to sit and do votes or to give That's my opinion for this. It is crazy. Uh, it is crazy. Now who's making the rules? Now there have been some women that said, oh me, I agree. But again, it's the same people that don't look like us, sound like us, and walk with us is now telling us what to do with our bodies and what we, and literally what we can do with our bodies and what we can put on our bodies. I I truly wonder uh, the importance of of this rule, and and that there was time and energy spent on this and debating this and then bringing in into actuations. Like it's like, come on, guys. Uh, but part of me looks at society and culture from the stance of like generations of mm -hmm. how have we treated women and how have we told them what to wear 
what not to wear. It's only in the past few years that we told women of color that they can wear braids and be in the military. I have to to stop that. Saying it and allowing it has been really two different things. 100%. And you can say what you say. You may not, it may not come to actualization and reality. Absolutely. Absolutely. The reality of that piece is we are, we're, society and government is now allowing women to wear their hair the way they want to wear their hair. Think about how, how absurd that is. Oh, I'm aware. Uh, and <laughs> so when I think about the rules and regulation of, of women from a multitude of generations, mm-hmm. and I, I will say, I point out the United States, uh, specifically in the United States, and I don't know if it goes to that Puritan mindset from the colonization of America, mm-hmm. but other countries, I would say the restrictions that are placed on women are very similar to totalitarian countries, to countries with dictators, to countries with very uh, conservative ways of looking at women. And do we want to be equated with countries that don't have freedom and equity? Right. To me, that's the the equality piece of saying, okay, then we're equal to countries that are putting women in these types of ways and restricting women in these types of ways. Do we want to be like these countries and they're it's it's terrifying yeah you know as a woman is terrifying as looking at young girls is terrifying you spend all this time saying be who you can be be strong you don't have to wear pink you don't have to wear blue you don't have to wear wear what you want you know go for sports do these things and then the flip side mm, but don't cover but cover your arms when you come in here it is so unbelievable but let's get into your book now because this all You've spoken to how many women speaking about having that seat at the table and what that means. Share with the listeners and those watching about your book. So in eight months, I wrote this book, Leslie, which was a which was a whirlwind. And mm-hmm. I interviewed more than 30 women, leaders from across the globe, ambassadors, foreign ministers, government officials. And all of the interviews I did, every single leader that sat down with me said two things. One no one's ever asked me this before. And two, I've never shared this publicly before. So I knew I was onto something very special. The book became far larger than a collection of interviews. There was research that I did along the way, and it became a book about gender parity, equity, and equality. Okay. And, and really this whole idea of diversity of thought, which I mentioned earlier. Right. And the lessons that I, I share in the book from all these leaders uh, are really this treasure trove of not only stories, but solutions that companies and governments and all types of organizations can use if they really want to have diversity of thought at the table, which makes you more profitable, makes you more equitable, Absolutely. and it's better overall. Right. And which we know. Which we know. <laughs> raising that banner is beyond me, but which we know, yes. So with that, if you can share maybe something that you learned along the way as you did this book that you kind of even had a, oh, I knew this. I didn't know so many people thought about this. So many women thought about this. Something that was echoing over and over throughout the, the narrative and the themes of these conversations and the research was this idea of uniqueness, of embracing one's own unique voice. And I don't think this is this idea is gender specific at all. But when we look at uh, organizations and whether it's the C-suite, middle management, or the entire collective staff org, 
we look at different individuals that bring a unique voice to the table, their own skills, their own mindsets, their own beliefs and ideology, and, and their own attributes and strengths. And the, the real power that I learned from all of these leaders is that whatever their uniqueness is, they bring it to the table. Right. And so even leader, one leader I met with, the ambassador from Finland, uh, Kirsty Kalpi, she is a very slender woman and very, uh, her voice sounds very weak and timid. And she told me that she's like, I know I have a weak and timid voice. And here I am an ambassador from a major country. And I've learned that I'm not going to change my voice. My voice is my voice. Mm-hmm but I'm going to lead in a different way because of how I sound and I'm going to embrace that. And so her the way of leadership was bringing everyone to the table and listening to everyone, hearing their different ideas and then coming up with a solution versus other ambassadors she had worked under in the foreign ministry throughout her, her time working in this diplomatic field. The ambassador typically would come into a meeting and say, this is my idea. Let's make it happen. What do you guys think? Right. So no one wants to say, oh, no, uh, we want to go against this idea. We have a different idea. Sense. <laughs> Everyone wants to support it. And you think about C-suites. The CEO comes into the room and says, this is my idea. Let's go for it. Everyone's right. usually like, great, let's figure out how to do this mayhem idea. But the reality is this listening piece. And so she embraced that unique, literally a unique voice, but right. embraced her unique voice to bring people to the table and listen and then come up and she says, usually they would bring ideas that I had never thought about. Mm-hmm. And they were far more creative than anything I could have come up with. And then we would execute them. And here we get all these accolades from the foreign ministry and, and governments around the globe for doing something that, you know, it wasn't even my idea. But it goes back to what we said again, a collective. But here's where the issue is. One, you have to know who you are. So I do something that's what's in your bag. Who are you? What are you bringing? What is your uniqueness? What is your... Your, I don't like to say weakness, but what is strong? What do you need to work on? Who are you? How do you step in and own your voice? And so when you know who you are, you don't allow to be grouped in with that team mentality that we have here. You sure. know, it's this team or that team. Well, there's individuals making up the team. And I think leadership sometimes loses the individual and just looks at those teams or those departments. And unless you are someone that kind of stands out more than the other. You don't get the opportunity. You don't get the opportunity. Yeah, It's the team or nothing. So I love that she recognized one, who she is, how to use it and how it benefited a collective. And look, we're not all good at everything. And that's something that I learned uh, through interviewing these different leaders is that you don't have to be good at everything. And nor should you try to be. And this idea of perfectionism. Mm -hmm. Now, I'd say with social media, we can see far more uh, into people's lives, whether they're the reality or not. We see far more into people's lives than we ever have before. Mm -hmm. And we're striving for these ideals of uh, perfectionism, almost reaching this unattainable idea. And that is not reality. And so the idea, especially for young women who are, Mm -hmm. whether they're having perfect body, the perfect job, the perfect love life, you name it, or the perfect Instagram feed. It doesn't matter what it is. Uh, young women especially are are competing against, uh, it's almost like a bot. It doesn't even it exist. It doesn't exist. It's not real. And so young women entering the workforce, something that I've been mentoring and speaking at at conferences is that perfect doesn't exist. 
But how do you want to be? How do you want to show up and how do you want to be seen? And what are you good at? And, and embracing that strength and something I hate one of those interview questions. People always say, oh, our standard interview questions includes tell me your strengths and weaknesses. And I tell companies, do not ask that. Right. Because you got to make your weaknesses into something that's, you know, positive. And the reality is we all have weaknesses. Why embrace our weaknesses? I always say, what do you what do you enjoy doing? What don't what do you, you enjoy doing? What are you passionate about? What do you what right. gets you up in the morning? What or what makes you don't what 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 do you not like? Don't do that. Exactly. What moves yeah. you? And and the C suite, I think in mental management and corporations, they need to think about when they're when they're hiring for teams, um, hiring for strengths. Not necessarily hiring for a job, but what are you good at? And listen, you may hire for somebody for a job and they may not be that great at a job, but they have these other strengths and they should be moved teams. And so it's seeing those individual that mm -hmm. makes the collective powerful to really strengthen the collective. You have to have people with these individual strengths and you have to find out what those are. So, Susan, that's going to go back to this. Who's working in HR? Has okay. HR been empowered to go expand beyond their current culture or where they reach out to find employees? Right. Are they positioned and powerful enough to say this person has something? It's not everything that's on this sheet of checkboxes, but they have something. And then also, as you said, middle management has to also have understand what it means to hire people and to manage and to manage up. Most folks don't know how to manage up. Most folks don't know how to manage because you're not taught that you've done very good at something. And you get a manager or director's you title. A manager, yes. <laughs> but that doesn't give you yeah. the understanding of people and the power to have diversity of thought because yeah. you haven't learned how to manage up. And until we bring that, and I'm going to start using your collective understanding of managing up, we will lose so, so much talent. We will lose women as we are in the workplace because when women come to me and they say, well, I haven't worked for two years. I've been raising my child. I was like, oh, so you do time management. You are you've been a CEO. <laughs> <laughs> like, you've been a chief of staff. You've been a COO. You've been the CFO. I yeah. give them all the titles. I'm like, so you have transferable skills is what you just said to me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's packaging that. But it's also this transparency piece. And I've been seeing it on LinkedIn that that people are putting on their LinkedIn profile mm -hmm. uh, the way they've been spending their time. If they've taken time out of the workforce to do non-traditional work of, of right. being with their family. And I think this is a positive way to shift the mindset, especially mm -hmm. in the United States, where we have a different work life mindset work, of, work, of work, work. how people need to be. Listen, Absolutely. Leslie, I know you're you hustle. You are working and doing, but you also have joy and live your life. Yes. And, and that's that, uh, that's, I, I speak about this in the book and I write about it in the book mm -hmm. about this balance and this, and we'll call it work-life balance, but balance in general, we're, we're all striving for it at different portions. And sometimes we have it and sometimes we get off balance and then we got to work getting on balance again. Hmm. But that's normal in life. Absolutely. That's normal. We'll have to the, the HR piece, I, I want to go back to that because yes. that's really fascinating to me. The, the HR partnership within the C-suite and the mm -hmm. trust and the respect has to be there. And the uh, given the authority to HR to really do their job and to do it well, right. they also have to have great training. And then when we trickle down to the management piece, not everyone needs to be a manager. Right. 
if you have a great employee and they're doing great work, ask them if they actually want to spend their time managing because they may not be doing the work that they're so passionate and good at. Absolutely. How do we elevate great employees who may not want to be managers? What is their communication? Ask them what they want. Exactly. Not where you see them. I'll tell you what, after being with a few people who aren't great managers, not everyone needs to be a manager. And then the people who are really great managers, they need to be leading the other managers. I had a great supervisor in one of my roles, and I still believe to this day that this person should be managing multiple managers across the organization that they're at. And they still haven't put them in that role. And it's such a waste because this person training other managers could be so powerful and magnify and have that ripple effect. And and that's the power of being flexible and adjustable in how you see your workforce. And from the worker's point of view, you have to speak up. No one is magical and knows you want to manage other people because most people do not want to manage other people. So if that's something you're good at, especially women, especially young women, older women, especially women. Yes. If you want a position you need to figure out how you get that possession. Do you need to go speak to Bobby and be and trail him and say, that's what I want. I know your buddies with him. How do I get there? How do I build that? We can't sit and wait for it to be given to us either. There has to be that balance of understanding your worth. I'll tell you what, Leslie, I have, I have lived that. Uh, early on in my career, I was doing great work and I thought, no one's, no one's congratulating this. I'm not winning any awards for it. And I'm doing, I'm grinding and I'm doing this work and I'm working so hard and no one's recognizing it. And then I, I finally told my boss, you know, no one's recognizing all of these great things I'm doing. And he said to me, have you told anyone? Yes. And I thought, well, no, I'm just doing my great work. He's like, you mm-hmm. have to tell people. You, yes, you can send an email to me and copy the head of HR and copy the CEO if you want to. You can do this. Like, you have to elevate yourself. And he's like, look, I'll try to elevate you, but you also have to do it for yourself because, trust me, other people are doing it. Absolutely. I didn't know that. And then when I started doing that, then that's how I got staff member of the year and how I got raises and how, and how things really started happening yes. in that role. And I thought, oh, my gosh, how come no one ever told me that? You got to toot your own horn. You have to toot your own, and there's a way to do it. There's a respectful and 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 collegial, and also a way to bring other team members along with you. Absolutely, but you have to celebrate the wins. You have to, you know, and and recognize when things didn't go right. Yeah, you know, there's times where I go, well, that wasn't the way I thought it was going to go, but here's what I learned from it, and here's how it has helped us to do better in this new project, and so recognize, like you said, celebrate the wins, recognize when things don't go all the way right. And be learn from the lessons. You got to learn from the lessons. Absolutely. Yeah. When yeah. I was leading a team uh, in a previous organization, there were many uh, employees who were maybe a few years out of school, out of college. And when something went wrong, they, uh, they would melt. They would, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe this went wrong. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is great. We're learning right now. Do not get upset. Do not get mad. Like I have done things before that didn't turn out great. And they're the biggest lessons. You're going to carry them with you. So let make a mess up. Have something go wrong. Send the wrong email. It's not the end of the world. And I I tell people all the time, unless you are a doctor, saving someone's life in triage, in the ER, or in someone's in cardiac arrest, you're not literally killing anybody or saving a life. You're okay. Right. Absolutely. You're okay. And most people aren't in the medical field where they are saving lives every day. So 
it's okay to make a mistake. And and the thing is, can you learn from it? And then you share the lesson with others. Don't be, don't hide it. And I tell people all the time when they, especially in organizations and in leadership, tell people when you did something wrong and say, okay, like, how are we going to do this better? And what can we do? And there's this, um, I'll tell you this quick story. Uh, My buddy who was interviewing this general at the Pentagon, he creates this line and he says to my friend, okay, you always want to be above the line. And above the line are the words uh, prevent and solve. And below the line are identify and cause. You never want to be below the line. You never want to just identify it and you never want to cause it. How do you prevent it? How do you solve it? Stay up here. Always stay up here. Be above the line. And that's something I tell organizations. You've got to be above the line. You can't just identify the issue. No, I agree with you. Intent into action. One last question for you. Why did you name your book Seat at the Table? What does that mean to you? What does that mean to me? So many of the leaders I interviewed are constantly talking about the table. And in diplomacy, on if you watch C-SPAN or television about global affairs and international relations, there's that big table that everyone mm-hmm. wants to have a seat at with the flags are all around it. Yes. What does that mean? And so this table theme became very transparent when I was interviewing everyone. And then I realized that in life, oftentimes the most intimate uh, conversations happen when you're sitting at the table with somebody, when you're breaking bread with somebody, when you're having a cup of coffee, usually involves food. I'm a big fan of that involving food. I'm aware. (laughs) Having a seat at the table has multiple meetings. And so you can think of it uh, from even creating a genuine respect for somebody. Are you willing to sit at the table with them and have a conversation and maybe eat a croissant? I don't know. But that, a seat at the table has multiple meanings. And then the other part of the, the title, Women, Diplomacy, and Lessons for the World, that's the theme of the book uh, of coming to the table. And, and I hope that when people think of a seat at the table, they think about it in their own lens, in their own lives, of how they bring people to the table. Are they not only at the table, but who are they bringing with them? I like that part. Who are you bringing with you to the table? Susan, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us, having this conversation. Where can people pick up your book and where can people find you? Well, thank you first for having me, Leslie. It's an honor and a pleasure. Uh, You can go to my website, susansloan.com. You can also go to Amazon or any local bookstore. We'll be able to order my book for you. It's available all over the world. So please find it. (laughs) And if you want to follow me on Twitter or on Instagram, at the real Susan Sloan. Uh, and also go to my website. You can always shoot me a message there and I'd be happy to hear from you. And connect with me on LinkedIn. Absolutely. Thank you so much again. Listeners and those that are viewing, as always, I appreciate you spending time with me here at Visibility Unlimited Spotlight and Visibility Unlimited, the podcast. I look forward to seeing you and speaking to you soon.